If you led someone to the gospel, if you were instrumental in converting a friend or a family member or someone that you knew well, and then you wanted later to write to them a few words encouraging them to be faithful, what would you say? You had a hand in converting them, so you have an interest in their soul, and you want to see them remain faithful, but you want to pen a few words to them and send a letter to them or an email to them, and you want to encourage them to be faithful, what would you say to them? What would you start with? What would you include? Could you do that if you were limited to, say, 152 words? That's all you're going to be able to say, but you want to be able to say enough to give the impression that this is what you need to do, this is what needs to be done, here's the attitude with which you need to do it, could you do it in 152 words? Well, that's exactly what Paul did in Philippians 2, verses 12 to 18. I recognize that's not the entirety of the book. But in verses 12 to 18, in 152 words, he did encourage faithfulness. So let's see what he said in Philippians 2, 12 to 18. And so if you don't already have a Bible open, I encourage you to get your Bible. Turn to Philippians 2. This will be our text for our study this evening. <clears throat> we may reference other texts, but we'll keep coming back to this one time and again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast the faith of the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Now, I recognize more is said in the book, in the context of the book about faithfulness. But here in 12 to 18, just in these few words, he talks about striving for faithfulness. So using that as our text, let's talk about striving for faithfulness. That ought to be the goal of each one of us. That I'm striving for faithfulness. That I want to be noted as being a faithful, diligent servant of the Lord. If you were to write to your friend or neighbor that you had some hand in converting them to the Lord, you would want them to strive for faithfulness. So what's involved in striving for faithfulness? Let's begin with this. Let's talk first of all about the action that is dealt with in verse 12. So let's go back to our text, Philippians 2 and 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only... But now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What action is described in verse 12? Well, there is the striving for salvation. Not to obtain the remission of sins, though that is something we should strive for, like we repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, that we might become for, be, uh, be forgiven and become children of God. 
The salvation under consideration here is the eternal home, something not yet attained. More about that in a moment. So we should strive for salvation, that is our eternal home. Let's look at a few passages that would encourage us that we should have our sights set toward heaven. And heaven being our, our eternal home, we should set our sights toward that. Hebrews chapter 10, notice in Hebrews chapter 10 and in verse 39. We are not of those who draw back unto perdition, that is unto destruction, but those who believe, that is continue to believe, to the saving of the soul. Rather than those who draw back, he said, we're going to continue to press on to the goal, that is to the end, which is the salvation of the soul, that is eternal salvation. Let's go over a couple of chapters or three chapters to chapter 13 and in verse 14, he says, for here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. That is the life here on earth is not continuing, it's not abiding, we're seeking something that is eternal. So we have our sights set toward heaven itself. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 9, receiving the end or the aim of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Here's something your faith is pointing toward and aiming toward, and that is the salvation, the ultimate salvation, that is eternal salvation of your soul. One more passage along that line. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 8 talks about the promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. So we should be striving for that eternal home that is salvation in heaven in the after while. But let's go back to our text. The text says work out your own salvation. We're talking about the action that is involved in striving for eternal life. Striving for salvation. So what is it that we should do? Go back to verse 12. Work out your own salvation, he says. What is this idea of working out? Well, it suggests that that requires an effort. There is diligence on your part. In other words, God doesn't just give us eternal salvation unconditionally. We recognize that. But even if we have obeyed the gospel and met conditions for remission of sins, God doesn't just hand them eternal salvation to us automatically without some diligence on our part. But this concept of working out is an interesting concept. Kenneth Woost in his word study says this, the words work out are the translation of a Greek word which means to carry out to the goal, to carry to its ultimate conclusion. We say the student worked out a problem in arithmetic. That is, he carried the problem to its ultimate conclusion. This is the way it's used here. In other words, the Philippians who already have salvation, who already have the remission of sins, here is an arithmetic term that is used with reference to their salvation. Work it out. What do you mean work it out? Work it out to its full conclusion. That is, it, it's a statement having to do with diligence firm until the end. So work it out like working a math problem out till its full conclusion. So don't stop in the middle. Don't stop at the beginning. Don't stop halfway through. You haven't worked it to its conclusion. So work out your salvation. Keep going, keep working, keep striving, and you do that until its final conclusion. So here is the point. The point is being diligent in our service until the end. It's not enough to get started, not enough to start the way, start the trip, start the, the race. It's not enough to run for a little while, like Galatians 5, you did run well. Not enough to go nearly to the end, but be diligent all the way unto the end. Let's go to 2 Peter 
chapter 1. Now, I said we'd go to other passages. We're primarily focusing on Philippians 2, but other passages are going to enhance our understanding of Philippians chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, this is at the end of what we call the Christian graces, adding to your faith, virtue, virtue, knowledge, etc. Now look at verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent. No parallel phrase to that would be working out your salvation. Be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. It could be that my calling and my election is not sure. That is, I started, I've received the remission of sins, I'm considered a Christian, most people think me to be faithful, but I'm not working diligent to the end. Make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, that's part of working it out to its end. You will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is, if you do these things, that's part of working it out to its end. So what is the action? Striving for salvation, working it out to its ultimate end. Now I know the action that's involved. Again, in brief words, what would you say to your friend or neighbor when you're trying to get them to strive for salvation, encouraging obedience, concerning faithfulness? Well, we would tell them to work out their salvation, carry it to its full end. Secondly, let's talk about the responsibility found here in verse 12. The responsibility for that in verse 12. Now, before we come back to verse 12, let's establish the fact that each person will give an account for himself. In other words, personal responsibility. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5 and in verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. In other words, I'm going to appear before the judgment seat for myself. You will appear before the judgment seat for yourself. We all know that principle. So each one is going to give an account of himself in the day of judgment. Well, that was the point made in Romans chapter 14 and in verse 12. Every man will give an account of himself to God. I will not give an account for you. I may give an account for how I treated you. You will not give an account for me, but you may give an account for whether you encourage me or help me. But we each give an account of ourself before God. Well, let's go further. Each person is responsible for his own obedience. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. Even becoming a Christian, even in obedience to the gospel, while others may teach you, others may encourage you, others may set an example before you, each one is responsible for his own obedience. On the day of Pentecost, as Peter preached the gospel, and the other apostles did as well, Notice that he exhorted them, having told them what they must do, that is to believe and repent and be baptized. Verse 40 said that he exhorted them with many words, saying, Be saved from this un- or perverse generation. The King James will say, Save yourself. Now, whether it's translated save yourself or be saved, it focuses on individual and personal responsibility. Now, notice at verse 41, those that gladly received the word were baptized. That is, they took personal responsibility. So each one is responsible for their own obedience. Let's go further. Now verse 12, how does that fit with this responsibility? With those principles in the background, Philippians 2 and verse 12 says, work out your own salvation. He doesn't suggest that as a group you're working out your salvation. You all get together and you work out your salvation so that as a group you're going to be saved. No evidence of that at all. But you work out your own salvation. I work out my own salvation. So here's what I'm learning from that. No one will nor can do that for you. 
So we're focusing on responsibility. I might write to my friend, as I'm going to write in a few words, encouraging obedience, that you alone are responsible for this. Now you're going to have some help. We'll see that in verse 13 in a moment. Verse 12 and verse 14 rather. But no one can, nor will they do that for you. So in this context, when he is saying, work out your own salvation, their salvation is what was at stake. Their eternal salvation was at stake, and only they could see it to its end. That's his point. So you take the responsibility to work it out. Don't wait for the elders to do that for you. Don't wait for your brethren to do that for you. Don't wait for someone else to do that for you. Your family can't do that for you. You can't do it for anyone else. Your salvation is at stake. Your eternal home is at stake. No one can work that out for you. Now let's go back to verse 12. The first part of verse 12. The context, <clears throat> let me make the point and then we'll go to the verse and see if we have the evidence for that. Then I think the context at verse 12, he's telling them you need to stand on your own two feet. Now, how, how, where did I get that conclusion? <clears throat> Look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. That is, when Paul was with them, they seemed to be very obedient. They seemed to be conforming. They seemed to be diligent while Paul is there. Now, when I'm absent, you are showing this, but continue to do this. That is, stand on your own two feet. Not only in my presence, but in my absence. You might tell your friends you write to that when I was worshiping with you, standing side by side, you were always diligent, but I'm not there now. Stand on your own two feet. Take some personal responsibility. Work this out for yourself. Here's the third thing I find in the context. And that is the support that we have. I might tell my friend that you have some support in this. Here's what the action is that you need to do. Here's the responsibility that you have, but there's some support involved. That is, you're not in this alone. While you work it out for yourself, that does not imply that you're flying on your own. There is some help that you have. Like what? Well, let's see. First of all, verse 12. You have brethren that help you. Well, that's what he was saying about in verse 12. Not only in my presence, he said only, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, the others are also implied a little bit later, perhaps in verse 16. Verse 14, rather. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. Well, now, Paul had been, in the, uh, had been present for the Philippians, according to verse 12. I'd been there with you. And no doubt he had encouraged them to remain faithful. He had taught them to remain faithful. He had set an example before them, which helped them. That was a support system for them. Now, I want you to notice with me that the example of brethren encourages. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and in verse 12. So how can my brethren be a support system for me as I'm trying to work out my own salvation? I'm responsible, all right. But how can there be support from my brethren? Well, one thing they might be is they might be an example to me, and that example encourages. Paul told Timothy, be thou an example of the believer. Be thou an example of the believer. And word and spirit and faith and impurity. So in a number of areas, in all of these areas, you'd be an example of the believer. Be the kind of person that someone could point to and say, here's what I'm trying to teach you about being faithful, about being diligent, working out your salvation. Here is the picture that goes with the writing. In other words, here's the example to follow. Well, let's look at another passage. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Having mentioned great, the great hall of fame in chapter 11, 
Then he says, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witness. Now that includes those that have gone before, like in chapter 11. But I also would include any others who've lived faithful before us. And the point of Hebrews 12 in verse 1, being surrounded by this great cloud of witness, as you begin your race, what, what encouragement do I have? I can make it to the end of my race, looking to someone who's already done that. And so I can look at Brother So-and-so who's already raised his family. I can look at someone else who has already lived uh, in their marriage relationship for many years and happily so. I might look at someone else who has been faithful through all their trials. And that encourages me that I can do the same thing because they did that very same thing. Now, and while we're in Philippians, go back to our context of Philippians 2. Jump over one chapter and look at verse 17. We often talk about marking brethren. And we need to mark those who are not doing what's right and identify them, but we need to mark brethren who are doing what's right. And that's what this is about in chapter 3 and verse 17. He said, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. In other words, look around and you say, you know what, brother so-and-so is a great example. Mark them and note them and say, I want to follow that example. Sister so-and-so, what a marvelous example she is. I want to follow her example. Find some that you mark and note as great examples that encourage you. So you have a support system. Well, brethren, also help us in this matter. They may edify us. Even assembling together, we're edified and strengthened and built up. Speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The instruction in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 11 was to edify one another, build up one another. And so we may look for ways that we can encourage and build and strengthen one another. Something else brethren can do in our support system is we correct one another. If one is overtaken in a fault, Paul would say in Galatians 6, 1, ye that are spiritual restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. And so you say, I, I know I've got to work out my own salvation, but, but I may need some help. Yeah, you may need some help, and I may need some help. And so what that means is we have examples to follow. We have encouragement. We have edification that we receive, but then when we step aside and do wrong, we have brethren that's going to help encourage us to go back in the right direction. They're going to correct us and save our soul from death, James chapter 5. We may stir up one another, meaning we're not necessarily always correcting one another, but we may provoke love and good works, Hebrews 10 verse 24. We may stir one another up, suggesting, you know what, you have the capability of, and you fill in the blank on that, and you have the possibility in your life, you could, and we begin to encourage people to do even more. Someone could encourage you. And so we have brethren as our support, but that's not the only support we have. Let's go back to our context of Philippians chapter 2. God is there for us. So notice at verse 13, <clears throat> he says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. What's this about? Well, God is working to the same end. He's not working against us. I think some people have a concept of God. God is, is uh, making arbitrary commands and demands, and, and he's ready to zap me when I do anything wrong, and so consequently God's really my enemy working against me. I'm trying to work out my salvation, but God's working against me. No, God's not working against you. He's working to the same end that you're working toward. And so I have the help of God. How so? Well, if I could consider, like Romans 8 and verse 32, if God did not spare his own son, you can go a long way with that statement. If God didn't spare his own son, what does that mean? 
You say, I, I wish God would work on my behalf. He didn't spare his own son that you might be saved, that you might have eternal life. If he went that far, then he's going to help you. He's going to do everything. He's working to that same end. Now, he, it may involve him giving me strength. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can obey any command. I can bear through any trial. I can go through any circumstance, through any difficulty. I can do all things through Christ. Here's the strength I have through Christ. So God's working on my behalf. There's the support system. Well, he guards me. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. Who are kept by the power of God through faith. It is an expression that describes being protected as with a garrison of soldiers. And when you like this, this, forget spiritual things for a moment, physically. What if you lived in a dangerous city? You say, man, I, I, just, I, feel, I feel so vulnerable as I walk through the city streets. I wish I had some protection. And suppose then the government provided you a band of soldiers that always were around you, like the president has, the Secret Service. So that everywhere you go, you're surrounded by a band of soldiers that protect you in this dangerous society. That's the language that's used here in 1 Peter 1 and verse 5. You are kept by the power of God through faith, as if by a garrison of soldiers. No, not literally and physically, but spiritually, God's working on your behalf. And so I have support in this. So I might tell my friend, who I'm trying to encourage in just a few words, that you need to be faithful to the end. I can't be there to help you anymore. But I want to tell you this much. Here's what you can do, and here's how it can take place. You, here's the action. Work out your own salvation. You're responsible for yourself, and you have the support of brethren. You have the support of God. Let's go now to verse 12 and then verse 14. Let's talk about the attitude. I might need to tell my friend in this short little paragraph I'm writing to them, the attitude they need, because attitude makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? And so what is the attitude? Well, verse 12 begins telling me it's to be with fear and trembling. Go back to verse 12. Work out your own salvation, he says, with fear and trembling. What does that mean? It means we take it serious. This is an awesome and a great task. Striving for eternal salvation, trying to make it to the end. Trying to get to the point we hear, well done thou good and faithful servant. That is a very, very serious task. Four times in the New Testament, Paul uses that phrase, fear and trembling. And in every case, he is either talking about his own personal responsibility or encouraging responsibility toward others to take the task very serious. Do it with, with fear and with trembling. Fear and trembling involves deep humility. Paul is suggesting that I acknowledge the possibility of failure. Let him that thinketh, he standeth, take heed lest he fall. And so what would I say to my friend who I'm trying to encourage them, you, you press on and be diligent to the end, and I might want to tell them, you know what, you need to take this very seriously. Look at the awesome responsibility. Don't take this lightly that I'm going to heaven and I, I obeyed the gospel, I became a Christian, I was baptized, but, but I think my ticket's punched. Recognize the seriousness of it and also recognize the possibility of failure, that you could fall, you could be led astray, you could stumble. What an awesome responsibility. But here's the second thing about the attitude. Notice it, verse 14, without murmuring and without disputing. Let's go back to Philippians 2 and verse 14. Do all things without murmuring and without disputing. 
What's that about? Well, <clears throat> some translations the, uh, of the New King James. Remember, if you have a New King James, and you say, well, my, my King, New King James doesn't say that. They are updated every year. So yours may read different than another copy that you have. And so the one I'm using, the print version that I have, says at verse 12, uh, verse 14, without murmuring and disputing, some New King James use the word complaining and disputing. Both are correct. The New Century Version says complaining and arguing. So what are we focusing? We're focusing on the attitude and, and striving for salvation. Do it without complaining, without arguing, without disputing and arguing. The New American Standard 95 says without grumbling and disputing. In other words, our obedience should be rendered cheerfully toward God. Strive toward eternal salvation. Strive for eternal life. What an attitude? Well, take it very seriously with fear and trembling, but also do it without murmuring and without disputing, without complaining or arguing or expressing displeasure. Both words suggest the idea of some expression of displeasure. Either I don't like what is required, I don't like what's being done, I'm dissatisfied with my circumstance, I'm complaining and grumbling. So what, what, what direction does that go? That seems to be a broad statement. It would seemingly include, especially, that we're not complaining against God. That is, we're not complaining and grumbling about what He has commanded or what He expects of me. I cheerfully render obedience. And so I might encourage my friend that I'm trying to say, you need to be diligent to the end, and, and I'm trying to just say this in a few words, so make sure your attitude is not only one of awesome responsibility, but you do this with cheerfulness without complaining against God. For what he's required of you. It might include complaining about our circumstance. We may not be complaining about what God's expecting me, but I'm complaining about what I have to live with and the circumstance I have to live in. And how terrible it is that I'm trying to live the Christian life and I'm struggling. I know what God wants and I'm trying to please him, but how terrible it is in the circumstance I live in. It might include, as in indicated perhaps by the context, that it may be complaints against others. Go back to verse 14, do all things without murmuring and disputing. Seems to be open-ended. Don't complain against God, don't complain against others, don't complain about your circumstance. What's the attitude we should, with which we should strive for salvation? Fear and trembling and without disputing and grumbling. Now finally, let's talk about the results. If I strive and work out my own salvation... What's going to happen? What are the results? Now this verse is 12 to 18 because the results are scattered throughout this 152 verse, uh, verse, uh, words. First of all, there's salvation. If you work out your salvation, and the work out is this arithmetic term, means you carry it out to its full end, then when you get to the full end, there is salvation. We could stop at that point and say nothing else really matters, does it? Because what we have done is we have worked it out to the end and we got to the end and we hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. What a result. But there's something else that he mentions in the context. Look at verse 15. That you may become blameless. There's some other terms that he uses in the context by blameless, that is you're without blame. Harmless, the word harmless gives the idea of being pure, unmixed, your footnote may say innocent. 
that you're without fault, that is without rebuke. In other words, there's no reason for it. And so here is the idea that if I'm working out my salvation and I'm diligent and I truly am doing what the action of verse 12 is talking about, the result is going to be I'm going to be blameless. That doesn't mean I'll be sinless. But when there is sin that's been corrected, you're without blame. When there is wrong that you have corrected, you are harmless. When you have done wrong and you sought to turn back to the Lord, you're without fault. So now, because I'm working out my salvation, there's no fault to be found. There's no rebuke. I'm living pure and I'm blameless. And notice he says at verse 15, that's in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. What do you learn from that? I learned that it's possible to live above the world. You say, well, it's hard to live the Christian life. I hear this uh, uh, frequently. It's hard to live the Christian life in this society in 2021. It's a lot harder. Really? I don't know that it is. I don't know that it's any harder to live the Christian life now than it was for the Apostle Paul. There was a perverse and crooked generation in his day. And so you can live above the world, whether you're living in Paul's day, you're living in the time of Jesus himself, living in Old Testament times, or you're living past the New Testament times, or in 2021, we can live above the world. Then notice another result, verse 15. Among whom you shine is lights in the world. When you're working out your salvation, you're a bright light shining in a dark world. How do I know it's a dark world? It's a crooked and perverse generation. It's a dark world. It means we serve as an example. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the citizens of the kingdom of God. That's us. He begins by talking about the kind of people who go into the kingdom, into the kingdom. That's the Beatitudes. The beginning at verse 13, he talks the, about the impact they have on the world. And notice what he said, You're a, you are salt of the earth. And if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? For it is good for nothing but thrown out and be trampled under the foot of men. And you are the light of the world. We often talk about our being an example to brethren. Now, this is the light of the world. He's talking about the example that Christians should be, the servants in the kingdom are going to be to the world. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. That is, here is the impact we have on the world because of our example. So that's his point that he's making. We serve as lights in a dark world. Let's go back to our context. Here's another result. We hold fast the word. Look at verse 16. Holding fast the word of life. Now, there's two things involved in translation. You say your translation reads a little different, and it may. Some translate that as holding fast to the word. It's the idea of holding fast to the word, and that would be included. So I'm holding fast. In other words, I take the word of God and I hold fast to it. I'm not going to let it get away from me. I'm not going to throw it aside and cast it aside. I'm going to live by the word. I'm going to hold fast to it. I'm not going to let it go. And so one of the results of working out your salvation, hold fast to the word. Some translate that as holding forth the word of life. In other words, we take that and we share it with others. But now we're talking about results in the context. So let's put that together and string that together at verse 16. You may become blameless and harmless without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights of the world, holding fast or holding forth the word of life. What's the point I'm trying to make? The holding forth may come that we teach it by word or it may, more by the context, teach it by example. 
That when I am blameless and harmless and without fault in the midst of a crooked generation, I'm holding forth the word of life by my example. So people are attracted to the gospel. They're interested in the kind of life that we're living. And then finally, notice verses 17 and 18 of our context. There's going to be rejoicing. Now notice what Paul said in verse 17. Yes, if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. If you work out your own salvation full to the end, that causes rejoicing. I'm, I'm rejoicing in that. And you rejoice in that. When, when you see somebody that you have led to the gospel and you see them working out their salvation to the full end, that's a cause for you to rejoice. It causes others to rejoice. For them to be encouraged. What kind of results come from working out your own salvation? Striving for salvation. We have salvation itself. We're blameless. We serve as lights in a dark world. We hold fast the word and there is rejoicing. That's a short 152 words encouraging faithfulness. Striving for faithfulness. What would you say to someone if you were going to say in just a few short words, here's what you need to do to be faithful. What would you say to them? This is what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2. He talked about the action. Talked about the responsibility, talked about the support, talked about the attitude, he talked about the results. In Philippians 2, 12 to 18. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?